Did you notice a theme through the music? What was the one word that came out? Holy. Remember that. Remember that today. So, the rock band The Who sang a song that went like this. Who are you? Anyone heard that one before? No more. That's, that's all you get. That's all you get. Now that I've firmly implanted that song in your head, and maybe they asked the right question. I think they had the wrong answers. But that's my question for you. Who are you? Who are you in your comings and goings, day in and day out, in dealing with people in the marketplace, in the play place, in the public place, in the private place, in your actions, attitudes, and behaviors? Who are you? Last week we started a series in the books, the post-exilic books, history of God's people coming back to Jerusalem, Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we saw, kind of in line with what Joel mentioned in his prayer, that a holy God who was sovereign over all of history was faithful to his people to bring them back. And he was sovereign, replacing one empire with another. He was sovereign, replacing one king with another, and then working in that king to bring his people back, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to restore worship there and to restore their identity. And so, the pathway to the question I'm asking today might seem a, a bit circuitous. It might be a little different path. It might be the path less traveled. But that's where we're going today. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 2. If you have your Bibles there, open them up. We're going to be in Ezra 2 and 1 today. But this is a deep dive this is a long passage. I'm going to take a deep breath. You should take a deep breath because we have 66 verses to work through and some crazy names. All right? So, but here we go. All of God's Word is inspired. It's profitable for teaching, rebuke, rebuke correcting. And it's profitable for us, trust me, today. We're going to test that theory, but we're going to see it be true. So here we go. Ready? Ezra chapter 2, starting at verse 1 through verse 66. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town. In the company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Raum, and Baana. The list of the men of the people of Israel, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 372, of Ara, 775, of Peath Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, of Elam, 1,254, of Zatu, 945, of Zakai, 760, of Bani, 642, of Bibai, 623, of Asgad, 1,222, of Adonikam, 666, hmm, interesting number, of Bigvi, 2,056, of Aden, 4. 54. That's a big engine in a Chevy, trust me. Of Adder, through Hezekiah, 998. Uh, of Bezai, 323. Of Jorah, 
112. Of Hashum, 223. Of Gebar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. Of Natofah, 56. Of Anathoth, 128. Of Asmaveth, 42. Of Kiriath, Jerem, Kephira, and Bieroth, 743. Of Rama and Geba, 621. Of Michmash, 122. Of Bethel and Ai, 223. Of Nebo, 52. Of Migbish, 156. Of Elam, uh, 1,254. Of Harim, 320. Of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. Of Jericho, 345. Of Sinea, 3,630. The priests, the descendants of Jediah through the family of Yeshua, 973. Of Emer, 1,052. Of Peshur, 1,247. Of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the descendants of Yeshua and Cadmiel, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Ater, Talman, Akub, Hatita, Shobai, 139. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hasufa, Tabaroth, Keros, Siha, Paden, Labana, Hagaba, Akub, Ha, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gedel, Kahar, Realiah, Rezin, Nakoda, Gazim, uh, Azza, Pasea, Besai, Asnath, Mayunam, Nefusium, Babbuk, Bakbuk, uh, Kahufa, Harhur, Bezlutha, <laughs> Mehida, uh, here we go. Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Teman, Nazia, Hatifa, the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Hasophereth, Peruda, Jayala, Darkon, Gadel, Shephatiah, Hatil, Pokereth, Hazarbaim, and Amy. The temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Tel Mela and Tel Harsha, Karub, Edon, Emir, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel, the descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda. From among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz and Barzillai, a man who had married the daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. They searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering the Urim and the Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 male and female servants, and they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Congratulations, you just made it through 66 verses of Ezra chapter 2. Let's pray, and then we'll see what God has for us. So Lord, this record is important to you, and it needs to be important to us because you want to speak to us through this. So would you open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see who we are and who you are. Do your work through your Holy Spirit. Edit out what's not of you and use, Lord, what you have for us from your word for us to hear, to put into our lives, and to live out. And Lord Jesus, our great Savior and Master, we thank you for your word. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Okay. 
you kind of may go, okay, pastor, what gives? That was about as, as exciting as watching paint dry. And you're right. What am I driving at? How am I getting to who I am? My identification. And what I want to point to is actually another list that takes place right before this in the previous chapter. If you want to page back to, and this is a lot shorter, uh, if you want to page back to Ezra chapter 1, verses um, 7 through 11, we'll see this. Verse 7, moreover, the king, moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And you may be going, okay, pastor. Um, same exercise and same result. You know what the definition of insanity is, right? Doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. What is the purpose of this list? What is the purpose of these articles? The purpose of these articles is that they were holy to the Lord. They were set aside specifically and only exclusively for His worship. You couldn't come up to the temple and say, Hey, I'm thirsty. Can I, can I get a drink out of one of those gold cups? Could, could I get a little manna from one of those gold pans? No. The only people who could handle these things were the priests and the Levites. And that was exclusively in coming before the living God of the universe, who is holy. That means there is no one like Him. He is without moral spot or blemish or flaw. He is the source of all that is just and right. And for an unholy man who is flawed to come before a holy God that is a fearful and awesome thing. They had to prepare themselves to come into His presence. In fact, next Sunday is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The one time during the year where the high priest would go behind to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and sprinkle the blood of the atonement on the mercy seat. And he had to come fully prepared to consecrate himself, to be holy. In fact, they put bells on him to make sure he, they knew he was moving around back there and they put a rope around his ankle in case he died and was struck dead for being unholy so they could pull him out so no one else would be killed if that happened. But this is coming before a holy God. Now these articles that were counted for here, they might have gone as far back as Moses in the tabernacle when the presence of God was in a tent rather than a temple. But more likely, these things were constructed for this holy worship during the reign of Solomon or his descendants when there was revival in the land of Judah. Saying we need, we need to take care of this worship. We need the right articles. And they were made of precious metals because they were made to minister to a holy God. To display his glory, his majesty of the Lord. But if you know the story, in 605 B.C., and maybe then again in uh, 
585 B.C., after maybe some more of these articles were made, they were taken away by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, and put into the temple of his God. Now, I can't tell you what the full motivation was, whether he was saying, my God has conquered your God, or whether he was just collecting gods because he needed as as much uh, deity to, to support him as possible. But it was, it was like, okay, now they're under my control. In essence, they were taken out of commission, if you will. They were taken out of commission in worship because, as we know, the temple was destroyed in 585 B.C. There was no temple to worship at. There was no place to use these holy articles. But they were still holy to the Lord. They were still set aside for his worship. And so when Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, decides to throw a party and bust out these holy articles and drink from them, that's when you see the hand come out of nowhere and make the writing on the wall. Basically saying that the Medes and the Persians were coming to conquer them and judgment was coming. But now, as we've seen, God is sovereignly changing all of history, right? And he's going to restore their proper use and their function in the coming restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. Here's why this is important. In similar fashion, God's people, who God says, you are to be holy because I am holy, as he said in Leviticus 19.2. You are to be set apart they were put on the shelf for about 70 years or so because they weren't acting like they were holy unto God. They were acting like they were other nations. They were acting like it didn't matter what God thought. I can do my own thing. And so God faithfully brings his discipline. But now, in his due time, he is restoring them. Restoring them back to their homeland. Back to their identity as God's chosen people. That never stopped being true. But he let them sojourn in a land to serve a pagan king and serve a pagan society to see what that was like. And now I'm going to bring you back. Restoring you. Restoring you to worshiping me as I prescribed in my law. You see, God is saying, you are my holy people. You are to be set aside for me. Not to be like the rest of the nations. Not to be like the rest of the world around you. And we're going to see that this starts to slip a little bit later in this book. But by the proximity of these two passages being right next to each other, as God is restoring his holy articles, so he is restoring his holy people. And that's the answer, by the way, to my question. Who are you, especially if you're in Christ? You are holy and set aside for the Lord. So let's see what what God did in this passage, specifically as, as we see the different categories of people that he brought back. We'll see the breakdown. First of all, he brought back key leaders. He listened in verse 2, Zerubbabel. Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reali, and others. I'm not going to read the whole list. But the person I want to key on is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. He is the crown prince. His father was a man named Shealtiel, whose father was a man named Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, whom Nebuchadnezzar, after three months, him being in the, 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 thrown, deported to Babylon, put him in prison, and then uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son named Evil Murdoch, that's a great name, I'm Evil Murdoch, Evil Murdoch decided that he was going to take Jehoiachin out of, out of prison and give him a place at his table. So he'd receive favor. Again, he had a son named Sheltiel, and then Zerubbabel was born in captivity. He was the crown prince. Now there was another prince there, Shezbazar, who we met, who the articles were given to, right? 
He was entrusted with those things by Cyrus. But what's the difference here? It's kind of like Prince Harry and Prince William in England, right? Prince Harry is a prince of England. Well, I guess he lives in the United States now or wherever he lives. But he's not in line for the crown. While William is after his father, Charles. He is the crown prince. And he plays a key part, as we'll see, in rebuilding the temple. And we'll, I'm going to flesh that out later. But even greater, I guess, importance in salvation history, it Zerubbabel, if you read in Matthew chapter 1, verse, I believe it's 3, it's through Zerubbabel that Jesus has the right to the to the throne of David through Joseph. He's in his he's in his lineage. The holy one's human claim to David's throne comes through Zerubbabel. He is holy unto the Lord. He is set aside. Next we have a list of the men of Israel from verses 2 through 20. And we've got descendants of 18 different men. There's not necessarily anything unusual about them, but they kept their family records and they were demonstrating they were part of God's holy people. And then you get a list of men of towns and it starts out in verse 21 with the men of Bethlehem. 21 different towns, some we're familiar with, Bethlehem, Jericho, Bethel, Ai, some we're not so familiar with. Places like Asmaveth, Natofa, Ono, way before Yoko. Thank you, thank you. But it's interesting, in that list, in that list, it starts out with Bethlehem. Why? Well, it was David's birthplace, right? David was kind of the archetypal king of Jerusalem. But I wonder if God put it in there just to foreshadow what would happen in that old little town of Bethlehem about 450 years later. Bethlehem is the first. But all these towns are part of God's holy people. Next you get the priests. And now we see how this is driving more towards worship and making God central. Verses 36-39. They're all descendants of Aaron. Aaron, who was Moses' brother of the tribe of Levi. See, only those who were descendants, blood descendants of Aaron could be priests. They were the only ones who could offer sacrifices in order for sins to be forgiven for the people of Israel. They were the only ones who could make atonement. And only the priests could declare someone clean or unclean. Only the priest could declare someone clean or unclean. If you read about the holy garments that Aaron and his descendants were to wear, the high priest had a turban or a crown with a little plate that said on it, Holy to the Lord. He was set aside, and as I told you earlier, only he could come in and make atonement once a year on the Yom Kippur. And the priests were going to be key in restoring worship in Jerusalem. But as we get to the new covenant, the New Testament, we see a new high priest put in place. And he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But one of the differences I see between the high priests of Aaron and Jesus, our high priest for those who are in Christ, is while Aaron and his descendants could declare someone clean or unclean, only Jesus, our high priest, can make somebody who is unclean, clean. You see, the old covenant can only point to the problem. It's in the new covenant where that problem is solved and changed. We can have right standing before a holy God. Okay, I need to keep going here. 
In verse 40, we meet the Levites. The list two of the Levites' descendants, Jeshua and Cadmion. It lists 74. Now the truth of the matter is there were more than 74 in this list. And we're going to see what happens next. There are really subcategories of the Levites. But the Levites, they were in charge of the tabernacle when they were traveling through the desert. And they were in charge of the temple, of taking care of it, of, of setting it up, taking it down, care of of moving things, care of cleaning things, care of upkeep of the structure. And they would assist sometimes in the sacrifices and cleaning them up and other duties. But then we run into another group of Levites next. We call the musicians or the singers. They're listed as, in verse 41, as the descendants of Asaph. You see, when the temple was getting established... And maybe there wasn't as much work to do for the, for the Levites. David said, you know what we need? We need a worship team. We need a choir. We need musicians. And so David appointed a whole group of men who were Levites to do that. And one of those families was a name under a man named Asaph. And his sons, his descendants became those worship leaders. You looked up here on stage. You saw David Alderman with his sons. You saw Sam Atwood and his, his mom, Becky, leads worship also. You saw Bobby Erickson leading, and oftentimes he's had his own children up there. The point is this is that we do this not so our kids be well rounded musicians and go learn how to play and play someplace else. No, we do this because we say, this is something worth singing about. This is something worth celebrating, and I want to pass this on to you. I want to pass this on to the next generation. This is a God worth celebrating, a God worth singing about. And by the way, Asaph wrote some songs. Well, you can read them in our Psalter, in our Psalms, Chapters 73 through 83 are all Psalms of Asaph. This is what was going on here in worship. Obviously, these men, these descendants were holy unto the Lord. Next, you have the gatekeepers. They're also Levites, verse 42. And they list six names of some patriarchs. There are 139 total But again, there were a group of Levites who were designated as gatekeepers. They were the ones who let people into the north, south, east, and west entrances of the temple or of of the, um, the tabernacle when it was going around. They were there to be security force, if you will, to make sure people walked in prepared, prepared to come into the presence of a holy God, not just cavalierly, and make sure they were clean and not unclean, if you will. They were, in in essence, there as a security force. They guarded the, the treasury as well. And they could kill you if you entered in a wrong manner. They were the gatekeepers, though. The gatekeepers to worship. And they were part of God's holy people. The next list we get is verses uh, 43 through 54. 35 names, and they're temple servants. And as you notice, this is the most difficult names to to go with. You see, the temple, I don't know if you think about this, but this is the only location that God sets up for people to come and worship him in this time and to sacrifice to him. Sacrifices for each person of the nation to be atoned for for their sins. That is a lot of animals. That's a lot of wood. That's a lot of fire. And that takes a lot of manpower. Bring wood and water and ashes in and out, animals in and out. It is job intensive. And so this group were woodcutters, and water carriers, and we don't know if they were Levites or not. 
In fact, I think they weren't. I think they were descendants of a group called the Gibeonites. We meet the Gibeonites actually in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites are people of the land of Canaan who come to the people of Israel in disguise. See, because God had commanded Joshua and the, the people to, to wipe out all the peoples of Canaan. But they come dressed up in raggedy clothes. They bring their moldiest, crumbly spread. And they said, we're people from a long way away. And we, we, want, we heard about your God and we want to make a covenant with you. And Joshua says, well, I don't know. So no, no, really, really, we are. And so they make a covenant with them. And then they discover, you guys live next door. And they said, okay, we've made a covenant with you. We can't, we're not going to kill you. We're going to spare your lives. But here's your job. You're going to carry wood. You're going to carry water. And that was the place of the Gibeonites in Israelite history. But they became a part of the people of God. They basically were, were digested into the people of God. And now were temple servants being brought back from Israel as God's holy people. And next you get this, the servants of Solomon, verses 55 through 56, ten names. And again, it's less clear about what their function was, what, what they were doing. All we know, these are people that Solomon, during his reign, had appointed, and that got passed down to their descendants and their descendants. And somehow, this whole list is combined with the temple servants and the servants of Solomon as 392 in verse 58. But there was... There were no clear lines between, sometimes between palace action and worship action that happened in the temple. The palace and the temple were right next to each other. So this is what was happening here. And these people are being brought back. But here's where it gets interesting. Verses 59 through 60. These are exiles of other places. Remember it starts out saying these are the people that came up from the province. The province was Babylon. Okay? But these are people from a different place who were in exile in a different place, but they had no proof of their heritage. They came up from towns of Tel Mela and Tel Harsha and Karub and Adon and Emir, but they could not show their families were descended from Israel. Here's the issue. Are you a pure blood? Are you a pure blood Israelite? Or did you intermarry? intermix? Are you, just, are you just Gentiles who decided to jump on the bandwagon? Who are you? Are you part of God's family? Are you clean? Because that's a major issue about entering into the temple or not entering into the temple. Are you holy? And here's where it goes even more uh, in depth in verses 61 through 63. Priests with no proof of their heritage. And from among the priests, starting in verse 61, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakaz, and Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat, of any of the most sacred food until they were, there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. So, the issue is these guys are saying, look, I know. I know I'm of the lineage of Hobab, of Hakaz, of Barzillai. And they're going, uh, where's your birth certificate? Where's the proof? You don't have it? I'm sorry. You cannot be a priest. You cannot enter into God's... We can't take that risk. We can't take that risk of you coming into God's presence and offending His holy presence just because you want to have that privilege. And you can't eat of the sacrifices. I'm sorry. Until this is proved by a thing called the Urim and the Thummim. And what they were, they are these rocks. I, we don't know exactly what they look like. We don't know what, it's almost like a dice thing. 
but it would, be, it would carry in the vest of the high priest. It was kind of a yes-no type of thing. And the, and the high priest would pray, and he'd reach in and pull out either the urim or the thummim, and one would mean yes, and one would mean no. And that's how oftentimes they'd, they'd get a confirmation of how God was leading. Do you want us to do this? Yes or no? When David inquires of the Lord, oftentimes it's the urim and the thummim, where where God confirms that. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 41 through 42. But they're basically saying, I'm sorry guys, you can't be a priest until this is confirmed by God. You can't, I'm sorry, your word is not good enough. You need something outside of yourself, greater than yourself, to do this. You need God to step in. You know what happens? He does. You read about a guy named Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 4, and verse 21. And it's, it's listed as Merimoth, the son of Uriah, in, in Ezra chapter 8, verse 33. But apparently, somewhere along the line, the priest was there and affirmed that he was of the line of Aaron. But he needed someone or something greater than himself to do that, to give him right and holy standing before a holy God. So we get at the very end of this list, verses 64 through 67. There are 42,360 people in the whole company, that is the Israelites. But wait, we got to add on 7,337 men and women servants. These are Gentiles who would become a part of these Jewish households. So they were kind of folded or absorbed into the holy people of God. Oh, wait a minute. There's 200 men and women singers, and I have no idea what that's about. I don't know if they're going to. We need, we need people to teach our kids to play the flute. I have no idea where that's coming from. I don't have any idea. Or maybe we just, we need a band for the bar mitzvah. I don't know. But they're part of God's holy people. So it's totaling 49,897 people, almost 50,000 people who are returning as God's holy and set apart people. And we find out that they've got 736 horses near to Mel's heart there. 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys. Why the livestock? What's that about? Well, I guess uh, apart from accounting what God had supplied those who brought back, I think we overlook the fact that all the things that God gives His people should be available for His holy purposes, for His holy use. And I think sometimes God's people get in trouble where they make a dichotomy between, oh, this is my stuff, which is for me, and this is, this is what's available for God. I think we need to rethink the thought of holiness. No, it's all God's, and if He calls you to use it for His holy purposes, then it ought to be available. It ought to be ready to go. It ought to be at his disposal. Because I asked the question at the beginning, who are you? Who are you? And the answer for God's old covenant people is they were God's holy people, set apart to live for him and not for themselves. And again, they start to slip in this story. And we who are in Christ who've come into that new covenant with the living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be a people that are holy, that are set apart for Him. In fact, Jesus' disciple Peter says it this way in his epistle, chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. But you, speaking to those who are in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful 
light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, in a world that feels a lot like Babylon, a lot of distractions, a lot of things going counter to God's will, counter to God's ways, it's calling us to put our identification in a lot of different things that are ungodly. This is a reminder of what God has done. This is a reminder that He is what He's called us to and what we ought to be living for. If you are in Christ, you are holy. You are set apart for Him. And we ought to be living for His kingdom, for Him, and for His praise. And it should impact us in the workplace, in home, at the store, in the public, and in the private place. We are to be set aside for Him. Tomorrow when you go into the office and you say to yourself, I am holy unto the Lord, what does that mean for you and how you interact with your fellow co-workers? In the jokes that you allow to come out of your mouth or laugh at about what's important, what you, you talk to people about. You're holy and set aside for the Lord. That's the biggest thing I want you to grasp today. <laughs> and to take it even more into this new covenant. We are made holy not through our heritage, not through our ability to keep a law, but by made holy by a holy sacrifice. The book of Hebrews is a book about how the old covenant and the new covenant line up together and what they're pointing to. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's why we celebrate at least once a month what God has done in offering up the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the, in the Lord's Supper. And holiness means many things, but it means also being morally justified before a holy God. And the reason that God gives a new covenant is because the old covenant, it never is effective in making sinful men and women holy before a living God. It never changes the heart. All it could do is point to the way because sin is costly and it offends a holy God in the the cost is death. The wages of sin is death. Hebrews chapter, the same chapter, 10 verses 3 through 4 says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If those things were effective, we'd still be in that sacrificial system. But it is not. And no religious act that you can do will make you acceptable, will make you holy before a holy God. No, it has to be Him. In that same chapter, verses 12 through 14, but when, the, when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered up for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love it. We are made perfect, but we're being made holy. See, I don't know about you, but there are times I don't feel so holy by my actions or my attitudes. But God is, has me in His process of sanctification, making me in my practice what I already am in position. And that's true of you if you're in Christ. You are holy. And He is making you holy. And last, and not last of all, 
as one of God's holy people, you are chosen and you are loved by him. The words of Colossians 3.12 in the first half says, Therefore, as God's chosen, holy, chosen people who are holy and dearly loved, and it gives some actions there, but I'm going to go back to the, these, these labels. You're holy, you're chosen, and you are dearly loved if you are in Christ. Now maybe you're going to go home today and go, Pastor Nathan was nuts to read all those verses today. And maybe I am. Because they're not important to us. We don't know those people. It's just a list of names. But they're important to God. They're important to Him. You see, these are the people I call back to now serve me wholeheartedly. And we live in a time where the earth has never been more populated. I don't know about you, but maybe you think, among the billions and billions, does God really care about me? Am I really significant? Can He really hear my voice? Yes. If you are in Christ, you are holy, you are chosen, you are dearly loved. And He sees you. And He knows you intimately. And He says, you're important to me. In fact, the very hairs on your head are numbered. And some of us have less hairs than others, but we're still important to him. You are dearly loved. And even if you don't make it on anyone else's list, you, if you're in Christ, you've made it on my list. The Lamb's Book of Life, which is the most important list you could ever be on. If you are one of his holy people, you are chosen. You are holy. You are dearly loved. And last of all, maybe you're here and you're kind of going, okay, I, I'm not getting all this. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't the message like, be good before God, and then, you know, if your good outweighs your bad, then you, you can be a part of God's people, or God will let you into heaven? And my friends, the answer is no. It's a holy God and His standard is Himself, not us. Not He doesn't grade on a curve. But in His mercy, in His good news, His gospel, He has made a way for us to become His holy people. I don't think any of us are born Jews here in this room, maybe the exception of one I know. But he has made a way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But many of us are like that priest, the descendants of Hakaz, right? We're stuck. We're unclean and we need something outside of ourselves to make us holy before God. And that's what God has done in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way for us to declare ourselves holy before a holy God. We need someone or something greater than ourselves to do it. And that's what God has done. And if you're searching, my friend, the answer is this, is that God has made a way. And this is a verse that is familiar to many of us. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But it's John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world. That is a world that is going in a completely different direction than God is going shaking their fists at him. And he says, no, I so love this sinful world that I sent my only son, that whoever will believe in him and what he has done and being that perfect sacrifice on his cross for me. If you put your faith in him, in his death and his resurrection, you will not perish but have eternal life. You will be holy. Because it's not your actions that make you holy. It's the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the change agent. He comes in and starts to change you as you put your faith in Him. The message of the gospel is not be good. The message of the gospel is let God be good in you. Let Him come and change you through His Holy Spirit. But you know what? 
No one's going to come and take you captive and say, be a Christian, be holy. No, that's, that's the privilege that you have in responding. The only captive that Jesus wants you to be is captivated by His love. Captivated by Him. And the Scripture says, to as many as received Him, even those who believed in His name, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. To become holy, blameless, chosen children of God. That's how He has made a way for you to be a part of His holy family, His holy people. So that you wake up in the morning if you put your faith in Him and I can say, I am holy to the Lord. He's given me a whole new purpose to live for, a whole new reason to live, a whole new identity, and a whole new eternal destiny. And that is good news. And that's how a 66 verse recounting of God's people can remind us that He has called us who are in Him, to be holy unto Him. So let me pray, and then Bobby, will you and the worship team come and close us? Lord, this, again, is an amazing passage because it has your fingerprints all over it. You're preserving grace, and then your amazing power to send forth your people to enter back into worshiping you, being the holy people of God. And the same is true of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've not called us to live for ourselves. You've not called us to live for this world. You've called us to live for you. So Lord God, would you help us to live into that identity? Not by our own gritting our teeth, but by allowing your Holy Spirit to make his way in our hearts by saying yes to you and walking forward by faith. And Lord, if there's somebody today in the sound of my voice who is yet to put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, would you give them grace to see their need, to see that they are unholy before a holy God, but you have made a way, Lord Jesus, by coming and living this life, by dying and paying sin's debt, and then by rising from the dead and conquering sin and death. Help them to confess, Lord, their sin, to confess their need, and to proclaim their faith in you, Lord Jesus. To be changed and transformed from a, a person who is heading towards destruction to a person who is holy and heading towards eternal life and joy. Do your work, we pray. And for those of us, Lord, who know you already, again, Lord, help us remember we are your holy people. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.